Hello, On The Dresser listeners. Here is the complete interview with Thought Scholar from our episode, A Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers, in which we discuss her new book, The Libra Season, December 17th, which is International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers, and pro-ho womanism. Enjoy! We are so, so excited to have Supreme Bay, who you might also recognize by their Twitter handle, Thought Scholar, T-H-O-T-S-C-H-O-L-A-R. Past listeners have definitely heard us cite your work specifically on our Velvet Collar episode that highlighted queer and sex worker writing. And we are so, so excited to have you on the show with us today. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm excited. I'm always nervous to do recorded stuff or whatever interviews, but I'm here. (laughs) Well, we really appreciate it. When we started asking people what they were doing this year for December 17th, we were very thrilled to hear that you are releasing a book of queer fantasy poetry. Yes, that just kind of happened because I, um, I'm i not really good at working at one, on one project at a time. Yeah, because you have another book coming out too, right? Yeah, I have one that's supposed to come out in the spring, and that's like my main project, and that's what I've been campaigning for. But then I was writing this poetry because I went through like a couple of breakups this year and a lot of different stuff, self-discovery stuff. So I wrote some poetry, and I was going to put it in my main book, Whole Thoughts Compendium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I decided my well, I just I saying I'm saying I decided, but my editor decided that <laughs> it would be better to take the poetry out and to stop trying to put everything in one book. <laughs> oh yeah, that that seems to make sense. What is this? Does it have a title yet? Do you know how we can get our hands on it? Yes, um, it's called Libra Season. I love that. Um, I'm not going <laughs> to completely disclose why, because it's related to a few people I've dated, but I love Libras, let that be said. Thank you. I, I am a Libra, so. Most of my favorite people in real life are Libras. We get along super well um, most of the time, but it's really hard when you get on a Libra's bad side. They're really mean. So... <laughs> Um, the po- the poetry book, though, it's not out yet. It will be out December 17th. And it right now I'm running a GoFundMe for it. It's GoFundMe.com slash LibraSeasonThoughtScout. Wait, no. Libra Season Winter Fund. I'm so sorry. Oh, no problem. So my next question is, why queer fantasy poetry on December 17th? Some of it is about is, is related to sex work, and I'm a sex worker. December 17th is one of our holidays. Definitely the saddest one. Yeah, um, and I wanted to, to do something like a little more, um, I, I don't want to say upbeat because it's not upbeat, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it seems like it is because it's fantasy and it kind of takes you on a little journey, and I just love fantasy, and it just... It just ended up that way. I wrote one poem called A Date and a Dragon when I was really like in the thick of like, you know, grieving over losing this person that I recently lost. And I was really sad. So I wrote that off the top of my head. And 
then I just kept writing after that. I don't know where the dragon thing came from, but I like fantasy, so. I also love fantasy. And as a reader, I was super excited because December 17th is traditionally very heavy and hard to get through and I can't think of anything that would make me as a sex worker feel better than queer fantasy poetry so yeah um, I hope people like it and I hope I hope people read it (laughs) (laughs) and how does this fit into your well I was gonna ask how it was fitting into your larger body of work how does poetry fit into for you for also your theory, your scholarship, and the personal sharing that you do in your writing? Well, I started out writing poetry when I was very young, and I stopped for a really long time because my mom is one of those parents that invades your privacy and reads your journals and stuff. Ah, I had a stepdad like that. Yeah, and so after she did that, I stopped writing poetry for a really long time, and I only picked it back up a couple years ago, and then I I kind of stopped again. So I guess for me, prose and poetry aren't that far from each other. I like the kind of poetry that kind of tells a story. I think I feel like that's what poems and verse were originally used for, to tell stories. I wanted to tell my story a little bit, and that's, I guess that's what I wrote it for. So a lot of your writing has been very personal and bringing narrative, not just from your own life, but from specific narratives of sex workers. How has that been playing to audiences? Like, how do you have different kinds of interactions with your readers across platforms or across genres, like your essays compared to your poetry? Um, I feel like I, you know, like because I just got started back into poetry, mm-hmm. and I'm not like I'm not, you know, like some people they are like titled poet, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not, so I don't think a lot of people are paying too much attention to it, but. Because, like, my platform, I'm mainly on Twitter, and my platform is really heavily political and personal at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it's all really related to sex work, even, like, my parenting things, because it, it affects my life so much. And so have you ever participated in uh, December 17th, like, in a collective or personal way before? I usually just participate online with the rest of the community, but this year I wanted to do the book. I originally wanted to drop Whole Thoughts Compendium, but sometimes it's like projects like that, they just need a little more work and I didn't want to put it out, rush it and put it out and it'd be bad. So, but yeah, normally, um, normally I just participate, I just make threads on Twitter and try to do little things for myself, try to remember people we've lost, mm-hmm. all of that. So what has the experience of December 17th been like through online community and Twitter threads? Like, have you felt supported or? I mean, I feel supported by other sex workers. (laughs) (laughs) But the larger, the larger, wider community, um, there's certain, there's certain black women and women of color who are very supportive. Um, I've experienced a lot of harassment, a lot of in-group harassment from cisgender black women. So I don't really... Their, their support is kind of like, when they're not sex workers, it's just kind of like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, I feel, I feel supported by the people who are close to me in that community online. That's good. It's just kind of a sad day in general, especially when you think 
of like on that day, there's a lot that we see a lot about black trans women being murdered, queer people who engage in sex work murdered, you know what I'm saying? Like we see a lot of that and it's just kind of a day of remembrance. Yeah. Yeah. And it's coming right off the heels of trans day of remembrance. And there's a whole lot of crossover on those lists. Yeah. So on to more inspiring resistance, happier questions. Can you tell us about host role? Oh, okay. So sorry. I know that's completely switching topics. I was just really excited to ask about it. Uh, we're planning hostel for June 2nd, which is another sex worker holiday. Mm-hmm. International Horse Day, right? Yes. There's one in March, too, that I always mix up the March and the June. I think March is International Sex Workers' Rights Day? Yeah, Mar- March 3rd. Yeah, so that's a thin distinction, but I like that we have sort of two happy holidays through the year. After we do the vigil, then we get to have more, you know come together in a bit more celebratory style, I suppose. So June 2nd, 2019 in Chicago, right? Yes. Excellent. And what, what is that event going to look like? Like what, what are you aiming for? Well, if the weather is right, which hopefully it will be since, you know, a sad moment, we're going, we're going through a nationwide drought. So Hopefully it won't rain that day and we will be walking outside, walking a, um, a predetermined trail mm-hmm. and then stopping to hear a speaker or hopefully a performer. That's pretty much it. Just kind of like something small to get us started. And hopefully we'll be able to do more the year after. And how did this, how did this one come about? What was the, what, what's the backstory on it? One of my friends and mutuals, Zalika, she did a thread and I have been thinking about slut walk for a long time and racialization of these movements and these words and how I didn't really feel like that, that, you know, I could, unless I went to an event, I couldn't do, I couldn't really do something like that in my neighborhood because I live in a black neighborhood on the South side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something that was more um, black sex worker friendly we have to do it. We also we have to do it a lot different than slut walk because of where it is. Also, um, like we can't just be out butt naked <laughs> because we might get hurt. Yeah. And we're trying to keep the pol- a police presence out of it and everything like that. So there are a lot of things that we have to think about in our neighborhoods that we don't have to think about. You know, that maybe they don't have to think about as much when they're doing um, slut walk. So. Yeah, I remember I was weirdly at the first slut walk way back in, oh God, like 2011. And it was very, very different. This was pre Amber Rose coming in, but it was very, very white. And even though I was there through, this was back when I was with Swap LA and we had a table there. And it was a very weird experience to have Slut Walk be sex worker friendly in name in the sense that they had swap there and we were we were giving out water and pamphlets, but not sex worker friendly in reality with the reactions, even even from other sex workers who were confused why we were there. So I'm really I'm hoping that 
from there to Amber Rose to host role, there's at least a forward trajectory. Yeah. And how, sorry, this is kind of a big question and I haven't figured out a non-clunky way of of asking this, but in your scholarship and your writing, you talk about pro-ho-womanism. How are those theories being connected to the sort of realities of organizing an event? Like you already mentioned location and not having a police presence. Are, are there any other connecting theory to praxis connections? I think of like things that we do, especially things like hostel or writing books or helping other sex workers that we know in real life or online. I think of all of that as like, sort of an expression of what I call pro-womanism. Basically all pro-womanism for me is womanism that centers sex workers. I haven't seen a lot of womanist work that centers sex workers mm-hmm. or um, is pro, not necessarily pro-sex work, but is I guess what some people would call sex radical. Basically like not anti-prostitution, not anti-porn, but not necessarily pro-sex work as far as like the empowerment thing that it kind of implies. Mm-hmm. I just finished an article that I was mentioned in and there was another sex worker who was actually approached by the, the people who wrote the article. And I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was a, um, a non-black sex worker because what she said was that, you know, like um, Ashley Judd had made some anti-prostitution comments and whatever, and she's not really well-versed on our politics, which you could tell by how she was talking. But one thing that stood out to me in this response was that, you know, they said, you know, well, it leaves, it doesn't leave, it only leaves room or gives room for the narratives of victims of trafficking or victims of poverty, but doesn't leave enough room for people, like, I guess, quote unquote, regular people. They didn't say regular people, but I'm saying that Mm -hmm. because that's what I, that's what I feel like it means. It doesn't leave room for sex workers who love their job, but don't. But, you know, it's, you know, sometimes it's hard. And I think that's kind of exactly like the kind of sentiment that I kind of want to get away from with pro-ho-womanism. The idea that they're, because the idea that it's, I think it's the phrasing that really bothers me because there isn't a lot of room given for victims of poverty. Yeah, I'm sorry. If I understood what you just said, someone was making the argument that sex workers who are relatively content and not struggling financially are underrepresented? Yes. This is, I'm going to read the actual quote to you because I feel like I kind of messed it up. But this was her response to Ashley Judd. She said that her name was Brooke Brew. That's her handle. She said that sex work is undeniably a complex structure, much like any job industry. And then she said that Ashley Judd's position only allows for people who are victims of trafficking or were victims of poverty to share stories of assault. It doesn't allow for sex workers to say they still love doing sex work, but sometimes the job can be tough or complicated, but most of the time it's great. And I agree with like most of what she said, mm-hmm. but it's not there's, wrong there's not room on either side for victims of poverty to share their stories. Yeah, it's. I feel like I've heard variations of that argument for way too long. And I think there's probably a past version of myself that made that argument. And it's especially compared to Ashley Judd's supposed or alleged anti-trafficking work. I don't know. It 
you're right in that it doesn't leave room, but it also automatically centers the people who don't need the centering and are in least need of the resources. Right. And it's hard to catch that if you're not really like in that position or have never been. It's really hard to like catch that in the language because it almost looks like she's just saying, you know, like she's just doing, you know, correcting her, which she thinks she probably thinks she's doing. But the reality is that like the reason that the anti-sex work and anti-porn coalitions or whatever are able to grab these people who are victims of trafficking or victims of poverty, the reason they're able to like kind of grab them is the same reason that like some religions are a- and cults are able to grab certain people because they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is that there's no room for victims of trafficking or poverty to share stories of assault anywhere without it being skewed to without them being silenced because it's not empowering mm-hmm. or being or it being skewed to serve anti-porn and anti-sex work agendas. Like there's no room on either side. So for people to say, well, there's no room for people who love doing sex work. There's definitely room for those people because that's feminism is where they're at. Uh, yeah it is there's plenty of room there we're having brunches like yeah so that's my that's my thing with proho womanism and why I felt like it was necessary even if some people may feel like it's not you know people have opinions but that 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 sentiment is one of the reasons where why I was like there's there's a lot of discourse and there's a lot of people who are being erased well you're also asking people to recenter off of themselves and that's largely an uncomfortable process right Uh, but but eh, not sure they're but again that also means recentering off of their fucking comfort ah so do you have recommended reading for activists and organizers yes i do we will (laughs) we would love all of it i have like 400 books in my house (laughs) It's kind of sad. Actually, it might be more than that if you count all the comics, but yeah. So the books that I have next to me <laughs> right now are, um, let me see. Well, first I would tell people to go to go read my stuff on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> because I talk about this stuff all the time, and you can search my handle, Thought Scholar, and Sex Worker, any number of topics, and it'll and everything will come up. There are other people on Twitter as well. Uppity Negris is one of them. And let me think. Lorelai Lieb. I'm sure a lot of people already follow her because she's more um, visible. She was in porn. So there's a lot more people on, there's a lot of sex workers that I know, but they don't talk about this because it's really hard to have like, to mix those two platforms. Like I had to change my entire platform and stop promoting my mini vids and my work and all of that. (laughs) Yeah, that's been a constant compromise so i guess for my recommended reading besides twitter Mm -hmm. the um spread the best of the magazine that illuminated the sex industry and started a media revolution is the tagline yes yeah this is the anthology i loved it i have it tabbed and i read it all the time the other books i would suggest are i've got to make my living black women's sex work and turn of century chicago turn of the century chicago by cynthia blair the feminist porn book Mm-hmm. That was edited by Tristan Teramino, Celine Farinas, Shimizu, Constance Penley, and Morel Miller Young. Morel Miller Young wrote A Taste of Brown Sugar, which is also a good resource. 
No Tea, No Shade, New Writings in Black Queer Studies. It's edited by E. Patrick Johnson. It'll be a nice introduction to Black Queer Studies, but there was an anthology before this that was edited by the same person. So this is basically a second edition update with new voices. Oh, cool. So I would look for both of them. The first one is just called Black Queer Studies. The Black Body in Ecstasy by Jennifer Nash is about porn, race and porn. The Color of Kink by Ariane Cruz is about Black women, BDSM, and pornography. And Mother is Half a Word by L.H. Stallings is also another resource that I have. And The Ultimate Guide to Kink by Tristan Teramino. Nice. That is a fantastic collection. And Wait, I'm a- one more. Yes, please. Excluded by um, Julia Serrano. Yes, we, we we had her on our show back when we were on the radio, and it was so much fun. Whipping Girl was like, I had already known like the basics of trans politics, but Julia Serrano and Janet Mock, their work has given me a, a really firm education on trans politics, particularly when, come, particularly when it comes to trans women. But Julia Serrano also also talks about bisexuality and sex and sexuality and gender in general in a way that was really enlightening to me. Mm-hmm. Same. Her work, I cannot ever recommend it enough. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the things that we've seen come up in talking to people about sex work activism and organizing in general is looking towards past movements and past structures of events and group organizing and and to the details of running meetings is there anything any specific mo- movements or moments historically that you find yourself looking to um i know i'm i'm trying to learn more about stonewall i look to maybe not movements necessarily but marsha p johnson definitely i'm learning more about her Raina Gossett is a current person that I'm looking at and admiring. She also is a black trans woman. I think she's going by Tourmaline now. Tourmaline, I'm really bad at like certain pronunciations for some reason, <laughs> but like the jewel. I look to, I, I guess I look to certain people. It's really hard because a lot of the scholarship, like I said, does is anti-prostitution, even while it gives me like such great values, like Patricia Hill Collins and Bell Hooks and all of them. Like I still read their work it was it's phenomenal it was a it's a great it's a heavy influence but they were anti-porn or anti-prostitution and so it's hard for me to look to movements in general yeah what we've what we find is a lot of oh well we really admire this about this movement and or this particular group and it's a group that would never have let us in in the first place so is there anything that you would like to see in the next five years if the sort of loose sex work community or sex work activist community, it kind of in quotes, because I think there's a lot of small communities, not actually one collective. But if people were going to get their shit together over the next five years, what do you think that would, what would that look like to you? Not voting for Kamala Harris. (laughs) 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 also also, I don't know I don't think it's really hard because I don't know if we can look well I don't think we can look to politicians Mm -hmm. 
for any kind of help. But at the same time, we need some of these laws to change because they are enforced by basically a military, a militarized police law enforcement system, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think we do need decriminalization to happen. I've had a lot of arguments about decrim. Yep. (laughs) I feel like, like I said before, I feel like it's not enough. There needs to be a lot of work done around that. And there need to be other laws put in place that are actually helpful if we're gonna if we're gonna go the law route. What other routes would you be interested in watching people explore? Because because you're right, policy is not enough. I mean, I want there to be underground brothels and fuck these police and all this other stuff. So, <laughs> like, I'm I really I'm really a firm advocate for legal like legal or just underground brothels. I don't think that brothels should be illegal anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I do think there need to be, again, placements, things in place. I don't see that happening in the next five years because even with brothels, there was a lot of exploitation and not just by men. Yeah. So collective economic organizing, though, I think. Yeah. I am in favor of brothel co-ops mm-hmm. where there's like a group of people, maybe like five or, or, or ten people max that like share like they go, they maybe like like well, like with a grocery store, you go in on a on a building or an apartment that has multiple rooms, and you can work out of there. And I know people who are doing things like that, but they're mostly wealthier sex workers. They're both white. I was gonna say that sounds like a thing I've mostly seen in white cam girl culture. Yeah, and and escorts as well. Like they 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 rent out these spaces to each other, and they have the resources to do to do that. Whereas a lot of us, you know, a lot of people of color, women of color in particular, do not have those kind of um, resources, even if they have the community. But I, I feel like in the next five years, those are things that are possible. Underground things, on the ground organizing, mm-hmm. getting, more, and getting more in touch with people who are in our city, in our area. What would make it easier and more appealing and like, what are the resources for on the ground organizing that you think would be really helpful for the sex working communities that you're a part of? Well, for one, I think huh, if we're talking solidarity, that's a really hard that's a really hard thing, especially with um, white sex workers. To be honest, there's a lot of class divides already, and then like. Because we're, we live in a country where class and race are kind of, he, they, kind of they heavily intersect, where we, ha, we associate poverty with black people. Mm-hmm. You know? And because of that, it, it makes it really hard to have solidarity even within just the black sex worker community. Because there's so much class divides and other divides in there. So I think part of the thing we need to work on is making things more inclusive. That's what I wanted to try, well, want to try to do with Proho Womanism or publishing other people's voices, which is what I want to do with my um, indie imprint. Because like, it, it, it is really hard. Solidarity, I think, I think solidarity between black and brown people is very, very possible mm-hmm. because we have um, similar struggles. And I think that poor, poor, or working class and lower class white women should definitely like jump ship and come over. <laughs> We're trying. Some of it's, us are. Like, um, 
and you know, like there, there's a lot involved with that too, like ridding, ridding yourselves and ourselves of anti-blackness and xenophobia when it comes to certain ethnic groups and all of that. As far as middle class and wealthier white women, I just don't see it happening anytime soon because they're just so they're just too far removed from the, from the struggle. <laughs> And I've seen and I've seen this because I, I I frequent those baby center and what to expect. I'm kind of a crunchy mom, so I frequent those forums and those boards. And middle class and wealthier white women are really really fucked up toward poor white women. So there's yep. there's some in group stuff happening there too. <laughs> uh, yes, very much. Um, I guess same question, but on a more practical scale like what kind of one of the things we've we've been sort of going over are the little things like having bottled water available having a location that is physically accessible having child care available having child care that someone would actually want to bring their child to right. a thing <laughs> um are there any is there any like concrete thing that people could do to make to make the, to make your life as an organizer like just a little bit better child care that you mentioned is a really big thing this is something that's not even unique to sex work organizing this is like a i don't know if this is i feel like this is a western or an, a very american thing that people hate children there's no there's usually no accommodations for kids it's not kid friendly they don't think to interview people that are actually nannies and like put money aside in their budgets, like nonprofits. Nonprofits even don't really think all the time to put money in their mm -hmm. aside in their budgets for real childcare, for an actual room where the children can go. People don't think about that because that's one extra thing you have to think about. And I think um, Virginia, I'm really bad. My French accent is so bad. Forgive me, but Virginia Desfentes, she wrote King Kong Theory and Basemoi or something. I don't know. My French is bad. I was talking about how it's one of the great failures of feminism that childcare was not, is not like a main, like a main thing. Universal childcare should have been like at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing that's not like, why is this not focused on? And I think it's because it's a class thing. People, people who have money for childcare don't really like they think about childcare, but they don't have to think about it as much as people like me who can't afford childcare on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And it's usually poor women who can't really afford it. And like I said, people don't like kids. So even at, even beyond poverty and class, there's that. Like people don't like kids and they don't like to think about accommodating them. Well, and they certainly don't like to think of sex workers having children or being around children or children anywhere near any event that has anything to do with sex work. I've had people who are strangers and I've had people, family members, my son's dad, threaten, with, threaten me with CPS or threaten me with slurs or explosives, all kinds of things. So I think also, like more resources as far as legal is concerned, a lot of sex workers do not have access to lawyers or legal resources. Mm-hmm. Yep. And when we, go to, when we go to court, like when I went to court to get my restraining order against my ex, he brought up the fact that I'm a cam girl and tried to make and brought up the fact that I slept with someone he knew when we weren't together. <laughs> <laughs> 
try to try to make it like, oh, she's she's a, an unfit parent. She's a whore. She's this and she's that. And the, and men do that often with sex workers in the courtroom. Being outed as a sex worker in a courtroom is da- and it's damaging in all sorts of cases. It's it's in custody. It's in divorce. It's even in rape cases. It's yeah. So so I'll put that on the policy list of somehow changing. Uh, yeah. Also, access to lawyers who aren't just criminal lawyers. Right. I think that's about all I have. Thank you. How? Can, what is the best way for people to find you and support you? They can, you can find me on Twitter all the time at Thought Scholar. And then I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Thought Scholar. And I put a lot of my writing there these days. Mm-hmm. That's paying my rent, and I really need that. So, (laughs) (laughs) my work is great. So, agreed. And you should get paid. Rent should not be such a stressful thing for seemingly everyone when you're poor. I think all of our harassers and bullies online forget that we have bills every month because every time a sex worker posts a cash link, somebody has a problem with it. Uh, well, sex and empowered sex workers are able to pay all their bills on time, even. Or yeah. So I've been told. <laughs> so we've been told. <laughs> um, thank you again so much for being on the show. And we would love to have you back at some point. Good luck with the book and Thanks. good, you know, good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. For more information and transcripts, please check out our website on thedresserpodcast.com. And please keep in touch with us. We are on Twitter at OnTheDresser. Or you can email us thoughts, feelings, other feedback on thedresser at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can find more episodes and interviews from On The Dresser on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. While you are there, please, pretty please, subscribe and rate and review our podcast. It really helps us out, and it really helps us get a sense of what y'all think. We appreciate that. Our production team is myself, Lauren Kylie. Dr. Vanessa Carlisle and Danny Cruz. All of our music is produced by Lou Gomez. It's has fun doing this sign-off alone, but it is tradition, so all power to the people, all pleasure to the people, good night and good fuck.